this sort of avoidance of food based on fear, a fear of what's going to happen in their body is one of the main mechanisms of our fit. And that's what we see the most on our unit. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome to the Seasoned RD Podcast as we sort of wrap up the two years of episodes in this season of the podcast, we get to have a really awesome conversation with Dr. Camila Cass. Dr. Cass is a therapist at Acute Centers for Eating Disorders and Malnutrition, talking about a diagnosis that's quite frankly to me is exciting because I feel like there's so much learning happening about ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Intake Disorder. Dr. Cass describes the mechanisms of ARFID just like Dr. Jenny Thomas, and we'll link to Dr. Jenny Thomas's episode on ARFID describing the three types or mechanisms. And Abby asked some great questions. I just really could not cue her better. And that's the whole idea of this podcast is bringing in different levels of seasoning. People have been in the field for a while, people who are newer to the field, but also even if you've been in a sh- in the field for a short time, but you have a niche, this is what we get to listen in and kind of be a fly on the wall with Dr. Camila Cass. So listen here about the difference between ARFID and other eating disorders. I believe the take home from today through this conversation is to have hope with the same amount of courage that our clients have because people do get better and, and to listen and believe. So as clinicians leaning into the support of your community, including supervision and staying abreast on the research. And a listener comment in Apple podcast this month. I can't tell who it's from, but thank you so much for your comment. And you said thank you for all that you've shared and, and the incredible guests that you interviewed. So thank you to our anonymous listener. And please do consider joining me in the Supervision Freebies once a month. The information is in the show notes. Welcome, Dr. Camilla Cast, to this Seasoned RD podcast. Thank you, Beth and Abby. Great to be here. Well, we are excited to just talk to another amazing member of the CUTE team. I'll ease you into it with some icebreakers. My first one for you is mountains or beach? I'm a big fan of the beach, even though I live in Colorado. Love that. And then breakfast or dinner? I would say dinner because I have three children and it's a great time to catch up on the day and spend time with them. We've been getting this response a lot lately. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like time for everyone to be together because you're spread out everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then audiobook or paper book? Definitely audiobook. I have a pretty long commute into Denver. And so I really try to utilize my time and, and get my book reading done that way. I'm the same. I love audio. 
I just love audio. It, you can multitask. I know you're not supposed to do that, but, or there's not a way for your, your brain to really do that. But I like to do it while I'm folding laundry or other things that don't require brain energy. <laughs> All right. Well, you are a PhD, right? Yeah. Yep. And, and that is in therapy? In clinical psychology. Yes. I okay. went to the University of Missouri and, and did my, a lot of my eating disorder training there. You did? You went I to the University of Missouri? You know I that's did. where I'm sitting right now. Yes, yes, Kansas City, which I love. Okay, I love. awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So remind, tell us, bring us back to that day where you had to take your board exam. What was that like for you? What do you remember from that day? Well, let's see. I think I have mostly amnesia from that. It was quite <laughs> a traumatic experience, but I just remember preparing for it as best that I could and then really being glad that it was over and feeling like it was such a milestone to be done with. And yeah, that was years ago. And so, yeah. Huge. Well, how did you get into the field of psychology and then eating disorders? Yeah, I've always really liked psychology. I don't know why or where that comes from, but I always knew I wanted to be a therapist. And then in terms of eating disorders, I had a number of experiences that sort of led me there. Before I even went to graduate school for eating disorders and psychology, I did an internship at a private psychiatric hospital. And as luck had it, I was assigned to the adolescent unit and they had an eating disorder program there. And so I got to spend a couple of hours each week shadowing therapists as they ran groups for folks with eating disorders and also ran large family support groups. And I just remember the experience of seeing what it was like to have a loved one with an eating disorder and then to work with these patients, just to observe the therapist working with them. I remember this one patient who was there for quite some time and was on a feeding tube and was renourished to a good extent. And then I thought I would never see her again, but then fortunately she came back a month later. And that really was something back then I didn't understand, but now really understand how we need to open our arms to patients who who really have the courage to continue to seek treatment, even though relapse can happen to them. And so that was an early learning experience that I appreciated. I'm going to tell you, when you said the courage to seek treatment, I mean, that is, that word courage is so special. It's so important to recognize as we, because this podcast is for professionals, right? Dietitians, therapists, medical providers, physical therapists, anyone who's treating or even personal trainers or trainers, anyone who's treating someone with an eating disorder, but it does take courage to seek treatment and then courage to come back if that's what's Mm -hmm. needed when you saw that even in your undergrad or graduate school. So Dr. Mailer's comment on his last most recent episode was taking bites of the apple. It takes mm-hmm. some bites of the apple and, and to, there's no shame in, in needing right. to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I agree. I think it's a process really of really remembering you're dealing with a human being who has an illness that is not their doing. And it is so multifactorial and, you know, a person can 
through no fault of their own, just feel that deep sense of, of hopelessness or shame. And it's really our jobs to help them realize that not only is there hope, but that again, that they are really, really strong to be able to look themselves in the eye and seek treatment again and not to give up hope. Mm. When we can demonstrate that there is no shame in this and that we can understand how very difficult it is to be inside their shoes, I think that helps people really get a sense of kind of like, well, maybe there is hope for me. And so it's something that I've had to learn over the years as an eating disorder therapist, just the importance of really allowing people their own process and meeting them wherever they are and then welcoming them with open arms. Yeah. So how did you get too acute? Well, so when I went to graduate school, I was fortunate to go to Mizzou and studied with a professor, Dr. Anna Bardone Cohn, who's now a uh, a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, and she specialized in eating disorders. And so right from the beginning of my PhD, I worked with folks with eating disorders and worked in a clinic. And then after that, I did my internship at uh, University of Colorado in Boulder and worked on their eating disorder team for among the college and graduate students there. And that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I've moved a lot. And so I moved to New Mexico and did private practice in eating disorders there for a while, and then ended up being on a surgical team as the psychologist working with folks getting ready for bariatric surgery. Yeah, and developed the, the behavioral health component of the pre-surgical psych evaluations and also provided ongoing treatment as they went through this journey. And that was really a, a deep experience for me. One of my favorite experiences, working with people, helping them kind of get ready for the surgery, moving beyond any kind of emotional eating or binge eating they were experiencing. And, and I really love that job. And then sort of fate called us back to Colorado and I looked up acute and lo and behold, they were hiring and so it's been year four that I've been here and it's just been <laughs> such an awesome experience. And I, you know, I don't think we're going to move again, but do miss the beach. <laughs> yeah, because Abby likes to predict what the answer is going to be for mountains or beach based on where people live. And so oh. yours was opposite. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What am I doing here? But what yeah. are you doing? And I know what you're doing here. And we're so glad that you were pulled into this area, this field, because you have done some some research and you have a special interest in ARFID. And I think that's a an area that a lot of clinicians and professionals don't have. I mean, they do, but it seems new, but it's not new because 2013 was when the diagnostic criteria came out, but people had ARFID years you know, before it was ever recognized. So what can you tell us as a professional, what you've learned about ARFID and what you want us to know? Yeah, well, it's really great that they now have a name for something that I think has existed for a long time. You know, as you said, ARFID has really been around in our nomenclature since 2013. And oftentimes, I think historically, people have been treated in a way that's very similar to how you would treat a very severe case of anorexia nervosa, I think to the detriment of the, of the individual with ARFID. So in ARFID, as we know, it's, it's really an avoidance of food based on usually one, two, or three sort of mechanisms that are at play. 
And that would be a person avoiding food and, and becoming malnourished due to really fearing the consequences of eating, whether they fear it's going to cause them to throw up, whether they fear developing pain as a result of eating, or they're afraid of choking after they eat. This sort of avoidance of food based on fear, a fear of what's going to happen in their body is one of the main mechanisms of RFID. And that's what we see the most on our unit. There's two other mechanisms that can sort of create the persistence of RFID. And the first would be a lack of interest in eating, which I think, you know, I'm a person, I love food. Uh, you know, it's very hard for me, I think, in some sense to kind of wrap my head around that. But, but for some folks, it's really not something that's on their mind much. And they may just sort of run on the thin side and have very busy lives and and really feel stressed out and not really identify or feel their hunger cues. And so they can run into trouble that way. I know when COVID was happening and people's rhythms of waking and sleeping were disrupted, we saw so many more folks with ARFID on a unit who would just sort of stay awake all night and sometimes forget to eat during the day. And then the other subtype that we see that's common in RFID is people who get malnourished due to sensory sensitivity. So the textures of food, the smell, food is just something that's sort of unpleasant or a lot of foods are things that they avoid. And so they narrow their variety of food down to just a couple, which we know easily leads to a state of malnourishment. And so, again, for years, I think these folks would seek help and then would be so confused when somebody would ask them, you know, aren't you afraid of gaining weight? And, you know, you know, are you trying to sort of find a way to lose weight? And, and they'd say, no, honestly, I want to gain weight. I can see that my body is malnourished. But I think often felt like they, they weren't receiving, I think, the help that was going to be the, the most helpful for them. And so... At Acute, working with people who are severely malnourished, including folks with RFID, we wanted to really create a home for folks who need the medical stabilization who have RFID, where they can have very tailored treatment that they can feel very, I think, in a sense, very believed that what they're going through is not about, you know, fear of weight gain, but it's really about, you know, whatever one of those three mechanisms we talked about. And so this is a track that's been around for about two years, and we combine psychology with occupational therapy, physical therapy, dietitian practices, all in service of treating these folks with ARFID. And, and it's really been fun to see the track evolve over the years. Oh my gosh, that's the second like buzzword that I've written down, believed, to ha- help people feel believed. It's like healing can happen once you can identify and they can connect, you can connect with them. So do you, is there an age range for the focus that you're working with? Mm -hmm. I think acute is 15 and up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 15 up to, you know, it's as high as it goes. And so we've seen quite a few adolescents with RFID as well as folks of all ages. Definitely. I think an illness that, as you said, the importance of being believed, kind of getting the word out and letting people know that they deserve this individualized care because treating ARFID is really different than treating anorexia nervosa from a psychological perspective. And, and I would imagine dietarily as well. So 
I've learned a great deal from our dietitians and from our occupational and physical therapists, all about these different nuances. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll just give an example at, you know, we, we use these tools as eating disorder professionals like the EDEQ and it's a really well-validated gold standard tool. And they ask about weight and shape concern. And are you bothered by your weight or your shape? And people with ARFID will say, yes, I'm very bothered. I'm very bothered by my weight and shape. But then they will write in on the assessment that they're bothered because they are too thin. They don't like their, their the look of their body. And so they, you know, have to go out of their way to really make sure that they feel understood, that people understood where they're coming from. And so I think the need for also tailored measures and really just expanding the field to incorporate treatment for folks with ARFID is is so important. And I know the field is really headed that way. Hearing how you explain it, I think opens it up so much. The three different options to just I mean, we, Beth and I talk about this all the time for dietitians. We don't get a lot of training in school on eating disorders, but especially ARFID, you know, it's like a whole new world is what it feels like. And so most of the time when we're getting information about ARFID, like the outlining term is, well, basically it's extreme picky eating, but the way that you explain it's like, it's, it's way more than that. Yeah. I was grateful for the three Mm -hmm. mechanisms too. And I, it helps me compartmentalize some things. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm wondering on the second one. So the first one is fearing consequences, like the pain Mm -hmm. or choking or vomiting. It's almost like PTSD with food Mm -hmm. and some of that fear. Then the second one was lack of interest. And when you said, I love food, I'm thinking, I love food. What's happening in the brain of someone who doesn't love food? I mean, (laughs) you know what? I know. It's really interesting, right? And it it really, we need more research on this. But they've done studies and some folks, food is just not as, I think, rewarding. And it, it may have something to do with dopamine pathways. Like we know in anorexia nervosa that feeling the hunger inside becomes rewarding and is dopaminergic, whereas fullness is a threat and it feels very anxiety provoking. And in ARFID, I I suspect something is probably going on with the reward pathways and that food is just the the, the reward salience of food is just for some reason not not quite as, as bright or robust as it is for folks without ARFID. And so they could easily just get lost in their daily activities and, and forget to eat. And so with lack of interest in eating, that what we do here in the unit to help folks is kind of fun. We, we give them a range of foods and really try to have them hone in on what they like the best. And then we go painstakingly through why they liked it. What did they notice about the taste of it? You know, how did they feel when they ate it? What were the colors like to see? And just to sort of mindfully slow down the process of them remembering how much they like that food to sort of grow that experience of having more of an interest in food and to, to help them really welcome it as, as sort of a fun, exciting experience to sort of get back in, back in the hang of, of eating regularly. So, so we definitely, it depends on the mechanism, but the lack of interest is such a fascinating one, Beth. Totally agree. Going back to what you said about belief and believing that, you know, there's something going on here. It seems that that is a trend among all eating disorders, even, you know, how many patients have all this had and 
parents don't believe that there's an issue or, you know, it's a whole new world. And we see this, I just feel all the time. And with ARFID, I can even with that being tied into anorexia, I can imagine the frustration there. What do you think it is about not always, people not always believing in the eating yeah. Abby, that's such a great question. And, you know, I've been in this field for quite some time and I think things are changing for the better, but there's still a long way to go in that sense. My theory on that is that because anorexia and the other eating disorders are sort of labeled a mental illness, that there's just so much stigma that goes along with that. I mean, we know that with mental illnesses, people unfortunately have often been blamed and and, you know, why can't you just eat? And why can't you just snap out of your depression? And, you know, it's, if I was in your shoes, I would just do this. And so I think the invalidation is, is really high. And it's something that we don't see in a physical illness. When the truth is that we are learning more and more that the eating disorders have such a biological metabolic basis, you know, anorexia is sort of can be reconceived as a psychometabolic condition where people have, even in a sense of their mitochondria are functioning a little bit differently and their bodies have a hard time re-nourishing and sort of maintaining a healthy weight. And folks with ARFID too, I mean, we know in ARFID, it goes, usually goes way back to childhood that these, these babies maybe had a hard time gaining weight back then. And it's probably something metabolic. And so I think we as providers in seeking justice for people with eating disorders, really sending out the call that this is not just in the head. It's not just a, the head person had really nothing to do with this developing. It was a combination of, of genetics and societal conditions and other things like that. And really working to kind of unshame having a mental illness, having an eating disorder and demand equal treatment and equal care. Mm -hmm. And I think our patients can feel that they can feel when we believe so strongly that they have a right to treatment, no matter how many times that they have a right to be wrestling with their eating disordered cognitions. It's not their fault that these Mm -hmm. thoughts are there. It's happening to them. They didn't ask for them. Patients can really begin to, I think, open up their hearts and, and, do the very hard work once they know that they are completely 100% accepted and believed. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to recognize the sponsor of this episode. I'm always surprised and saddened when people don't know about this resource. It is that kind of a resource that's truly life-changing. Acute Center for Eating Disorders and Severe Malnutrition is your partner in assessment referral, and treatment for patients at risk for refeeding syndrome, as well as those experiencing other dangerous medical complications of malnutrition, of purging, and excessive exercise. ACUTE is the only dedicated inpatient medical stabilization program in the country with resources, environment, and experience to treat the most medically severe cases of eating disorders. This life-saving care is covered by medical insurance, which then preserves the valuable behavioral health benefits for patients as they continue the recovery process. When they're medically stable, patients just charge to the appropriate next level of care back to you. Typically, they're establishing disorder care team or referring IP res program. So all care at acute is overseen by Dr. Phil Mailer, the world's leading expert in medical treatment of eating disorders. 
expertise and experience matter when seeking medical care for severity disorders. You deserve the unmatched understanding that Dr. Mailer and the acute team bring to each and every case. So information is in the show notes. When you mention the psychometabolic disorder, can you tell us a little bit more about that combination, mm-hmm. that description? Yeah. yeah. So it's, I think it comes from the work of Dr. Bullock. And there's a large amount of genetic studies looking at anorexia's uh, correlates and what they're finding. And I'm not a medical doctor, so my apologies, Dr. Mailer, maybe <laughs> he already went on your show. But yeah. <laughs> my understanding is that people with anorexia nervosa are sort of uniquely set up metabolically to experience sort of a malnourished state, sort of to fall into it pretty easily because their bodies just have a harder time keeping weight on. There's a lot to do with their leptin dysregulations there. And so there's just so much more to this Mm -hmm. than we know. And, And that goes again to just helping people feel like like, yeah, you did not ask for this. And mm-hmm. even though you're having this fear of, of gaining weight and you're having these thoughts that you don't deserve to eat, you know, there's still a you inside there that, yeah. that is, this is happening to them. You yeah. are in a sense, you know, the person having to endure this suffering of these thoughts and, and what's happening in your body. And we're here to help. Totally. So I'm thinking about your description about how helping people look at the colors and understand and remember what they liked about certain foods. And, and I'm also thinking through like the survival of our species that like if this had happened to someone before we even knew what it was, they, they wouldn't have survived mm-hmm. if food is not mm-hmm. something yeah. that they're drawn to. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting point, Beth. I mean, it, it speaks to, I think, how much our society right now can be so compassionate and how there's room for, for everyone, of course. And I, I wonder, I mean, I think evolutionarily there's, I wonder if there's a place for arthids somehow. I mean, we know with anorexia, there's probably a, a place for it, that the body dysmorphia allowed people to maybe say to themselves, oh, I'm not so sick and I'm not so run down. And maybe I can go run out and go hunting one more time while the rest of my, my, you know, the folks that I'm with are sort of down and out. I can, you know, go out and find that antelope and I have the energy and I can exercise and I can do it. And so mm-hmm. there's that theory, you know, that um, there's a place for all of these sort of neurodivergent experiences in life. And so with ARFID, I actually think, I think I read something about maybe it comes from sort of, in a sense, food poisoning. And so having folks who are more kind of hesitant to try new foods, who really stuck to the tried and true, that this assured survival of the group and that they were the ones to say, no, I'm not into the novel food. I want to go far away from those berries. And so You know, I I don't know if I'm right about that, but that's sort of, I think, what I have read here and there. Interesting. I've never even considered it that way. What about the support systems or the families of these individuals? Do you find that, this is me just assuming, but if you are working with a 15-year-old who lives with family and they're getting a lot of support, is their recovery significantly different than maybe a, an adult who doesn't have a lot of support at home? I think Abby just underscoring the need for support.
support and really relying on the family as allies. I know family-based therapy is something that you all have had guests on and you know, your podcast has covered. And I can't emphasize how important it is to really bring in the family, let them know that what's happening to their child, whether it's ARFID or anorexia, has nothing to do with how they parented and that they have everything to do with providing support and, and being an agent of change. And so definitely want to involve family. For older folks, involving partners can be really important. I know that we had once a patient who had our fit who was a middle-aged male and he was married and we worked a lot with his partner in, in her just being able to sort of, in a sense, number one, kind of have a safe place to talk about how frustrating it was for her to sort of encourage him to eat and find it so hard. But then number two, helping her feel that she can be this resource for him and teaching her the language of how to talk about ARFID and how to encourage him to, you know, eat even when you're not hungry and stick to a schedule and kind of make it like brushing your teeth, just something that you have to do. So yeah, I think it's really important to involve family at all ages. So different, you know, but also important in the same way that that we need our support. So you, I loved what you said is it has nothing to do with how you parented. Again, it's removing that shame from, from thinking I caused this. And I know we've had some guests on here who work really closely with, well, we talked before we hit record. I'm Dr. Adela France and her emotion-focused family therapy. And, and I think there's another medical doctor with the ERC program that really helps parents kind of get out of that shame box. And so for kids and adults, it's going to be a little bit of a different, but it's really just believing, listening, learning the language. Well, I just think that we often have to for myself personally, having to remember how much loved ones have been so worried and been so stressed out about the person with the eating disorder and their family and probably how exhausted they are. And so oftentimes just not forgetting about them and not letting it go by that they need our sympathy and our empathy as well. And, and that we really want to just give them the space to honestly take a break as well. When they come to acute, their loved one is safe and sound and they can take this time to do nothing or, you know, work on that pile of laundry that's been sitting there and just catch their breath. Providing respite is so important so people can feel rejuvenated and then feel confident and able to provide that love and support that is so healing. Is there a space for in your program ASD, ADD, ADHD, who also have ARFID? That's such a great question. Funny you mentioned it because I, yeah, I think, isn't the research finding now that there's this connection between ADD and ARFID, right? And I have said, I, I have seen it on the unit. I've seen some, some young folks with some pretty severe ADD and who really struggle to remember to eat and have a schedule. The one patient I was mentioning who during COVID would stay up all night playing video games and then sleep all day, he also had ADD. So I think... Usually parents are aware of the, of the ADD or ADHD and they're not quite as aware of the ARFID. And mm-hmm. so in a sense, when you're treating ADD by helping kids get a schedule and empowering their parents to kind of 
set limits and remind them they have to get up at this time. You're also training the arc in a way, creating those habits that will just, instead of them having to really, you know, tell their child again and again, you need to eat. Well, after some time where they, they get the habit of it, it becomes more automatic. But yeah, definitely an emerging area of research. Is, is the program inpatient only, or do you have a step-down type unit for ARFID? The program is inpatient only. It's really just this element of medical stabilization. Folks often are here, I'd say around three to four weeks, sometimes longer. We've had ARFID patients really arrive in such a, a state of illness, you know, being honestly in the 40s in terms of percent of ideal body weight, that they require months of medical stabilization. Our goal with RFID is not only to medically stabilize, but really to get the person to a point that they can go to a residential treatment program and be able to continue their food exposures. So often a patient will come to acute and they'll be 100% GJ tube or NJ. And our goal is to help them get back on orals. And that can take some time, you know, especially when you're dealing with this fear of aversive consequences where the person is so afraid that if they eat, they're going to have pain in their stomach or, or vomiting. You're working slowly to meet the patient where they are. So we usually send folks with ARFID either to residential treatment where they have dedicated ARFID programs or sometimes back to their outpatient team. Often our adults have dedicated outpatient teams and they, they need to sort of get back to work and, but always with ongoing care from specialists. Awesome. I feel like I have a thousand more questions I could ask you. Like we could just talk for two hours. I think ARFID is so interesting. And before we hit record and we were talking about this, it does seem like this is the growing area while well, they're all growing like, geez, there's so much more to learn about RFID. But I do have a wrap up question for you. It's a bit loaded. So take your time. But if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Hmm, That's a great question, Abby. Thanks. Let me think for a minute. I can remember that the very first patient I ever saw with anorexia nervosa was a teenage girl who came with her parents to our clinic. And she walked in the door and came into the lobby, but she wouldn't actually come into the treatment room and was very upset and distressed. And so this is my very first patient of all time with anorexia. And I'm thinking, what do I do? What do I say? What have I gotten myself into with all this? I was really scared. Fortunately, I had a great supervisor and she helped me get through the situation. So to that scared, overwhelmed, just starting out therapist, I would say to really have hope and keep with the same amount of courage that I had, keep going. It does get easier. I think at this age that I'm at right now, I really respect the ferocity of this illness and how much it takes a village of support. So back then, I just tell myself to continue on and to remember that people do get better, they can recover, and that you do make a difference. And so really through these years, leaning into the support that's available, the wonderful community, these wonderful podcasts has really helped me 
to really make it through and to really enjoy and value this line of work. Mm, it's an evolution, isn't it? I love that. Like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> yeah, I can totally. And sometimes when you said it gets better, sometimes even even when you've been in the field, as long as I have, you think, oh gosh, I agreed to see this client or I agreed to see, I agreed to take on the X, Y, or Z. And I still sometimes feel that way. But that goes to the second part of your answer, which is it takes a community. It takes a village. It takes continuing supervision and talking through things in case collaboration. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on the seasoned RD podcast, Dr. Cass. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Abby. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.